the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. VEPLA is a non-political, multidisciplinary professional association concerned with the planning, legal and environmental fields. Welcome to PX57. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by Peter Jewell. Good afternoon Jess. Traffic engineering is a branch of civil engineering that uses engineering techniques to achieve the safe and efficient movement of people and goods. It focuses mainly on research and construction of the immobile infrastructure necessary for this movement, such as roads, railway tracks, bridges, traffic signs and traffic lights. Increasingly, however, instead of building additional infrastructure, dynamic elements are also introduced into road traffic management. Here to help us today through this is Val Nanakoni. Val is a traffic engineer with over 15 years experience in traffic engineering and transport planning and is a director of One Mile Grid here in Melbourne. I've known Val for a very long time since our days on Young Planner, Young Professional groups of both PIA and VEPLA and he's always been an incredibly gregacious friend and colleague. So I'm very excited to now have the opportunity to interview him. Thanks very much, Jess. Great to be here. Now, Val, we're all shaped by our experiences. What are the main things that have shaped you in a minute or less? Uh, look, I think um, I've had the privilege to, to live all over the world. Um, I was born in Singapore, uh, lived in London, and of course lived here in Melbourne. So um, having that spread across a number of, of cultures and, and experiences, I, I think, is what shaped me. And tell us about your firm. Why the name? Uh, so the firm started uh, five years ago. Um, there was four of us that worked at a large organisation um, and we decided, look, it's probably time to try and shape our own future and, and, and be our own boss. So um, about a year worth of planning um, and how things actually worked out was quite quite funny. We were um, all had to resign on, on the same day and I was actually due to get married a, a couple of days later. So This is about five years ago, so you would have been 32, 33? Uh, 32, yeah. Um, so I had to go to my father-in-law and say, hey, mate, uh, yeah, about to resign from my job um, and I'm going to embark on this adventure by myself with a, with a few other guys. So that's what happened and I um, actually got married in, in London, so I had to resign on Skype at about 4am with uh, a shirt on and, uh, and and the computer in front of me, so, so that was quite funny. So why the name? Um, so as you're starting a business, you're going through a number of um, number of things, thinking about your name and where you're going to be located, etc. And we wanted to obviously have something generally traffic related, so we're going through a whole lot of really bad names and, and nothing really stuck. <clears throat> um, so it was it was a night out at a function and I was at a venue called Thousand Pound Bend. And I thought, oh wow, that, that's interesting about how that sort of all worked together. And then One Mile Grid just, just came to fruition and, um, and here we are. So a bit of a uh, reference to Robert Hoddle, who um, actually planned Melbourne. Uh, he was a surveyor in the 1800s and, and planned the layout of Melbourne, which is in a one-mile grid. OMG was probably your most overused phrase as well, right? Uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> before and after. <laughs> now, Val, much is misunderstood about the role of a traffic engineer. Perhaps the use of the word traffic suggests it's all about vehicles, whereas perhaps movement or access engineers would be better. Is that something you see a change in your profession? Yeah, definitely. 
the changes, um, also over the last 15 years, um, back when I first started, it was very car orientated and now it's moved to more sustainable outcomes, which um, I, I think is great and it's definitely the way that we need to move forward. So Jess, there we go. We've rebranded a whole uh, engineering field. Should we remove the term engineer as well and just call you, you know, <laughs> no, that's, I, I love, I love transport strategists. I, th- I think engineers get a bad, a very bad time. They do. They're mocked as being boring people, but they make the cities run. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the support. <laughs> now, what are, talking about that, Val, what are some of the prejudices against traffic engineers? Um, probably the first question I get asked is, oh, do you work for Vic Roads or work for a council? Um, a lot of people don't quite realise that there's uh, larger parts to it um, and larger parts to the things that we do. And, of course, I always get the other question about, oh, are you the one that sits in the row vest counting cars on, on the intersection, um, which can be a little bit, a little bit boring, but uh, no, we don't do that. I'd, I'd be the one. Are you the twit who put those speed humps in my road, <laughs> which wrecks my car and hurts me every time I go over them? No, I don't think it's me. It must be someone else. Are there important issues associated with traffic movement that are uh, misunderstood by the community, do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think so, particularly um, here in Melbourne where we are quite car-based. Um, I, I don't think people quite understand the, the shift that needs to happen uh, towards more sustainable um, transport options. So whether that's public transport, bikes, um, just making it easier to walk around your local community, um, I, I think that's uh, a way forward. So, Val, why does it have to change? Look, I think from an environmental point of view, uh, things need to change. Uh, there's a lot of climate change debunkers out there, but I'm not one of them. Um, I, I think things need to change in that regard. So um, being more sustainable in the way that we travel, which is a big part of um, everyone's life, I, I think that needs to happen. And density is obviously a huge part of that argument as well. Correct, yeah. Uh, and, and I think density, whilst um, supports obviously more development, um, I think it can also support those sustainable outcomes. Now, on driverless cars, um, Val, I'm very sceptical of these things. Jess is not. Um, I heard that Uber expects that you know, driverless cars will not happen in, in for a very long time because the system has to be perfect before it can start and there's so many legacy issues with all the roads. And they think it's going to be much quicker for Uber Sky uh, flying around in the air. Any thoughts about that? Um, look, it was really exciting a couple of months ago when Uber announced that Melbourne would be one of the three or four cities that would be um, uh, rolled out with Uber Air. Uh, it's, it's a tremendously exciting um, prospect and reminds us of uh, the cartoons back when, when, I, when I was a, a young fellow with uh, the Jetsons uh, driving around in those sort of spaceshipy type things uh, to and from work. The problems that I sort of see is, is safety and I mean you think about planes and things like that there's a lot of um, levels of safety that need to be achieved so for, for those autonomous or even if they're piloted um, Uber airs to occur you're going to have to have thousands if not millions of hours of, of airtime or driver time um, to make sure that they're safe enough to carry your average punter from, from the city to the airport so I think there's a fair way to go. I think technology-wise, it's it's probably almost there, um, but from a sort of safety and, and, and getting the, the compliance side of things, regardless of if you're air, in the air or in the sky, I still think there's a problem. I can see that the, the perhaps the preliminary step in that might be the delivery aspect of it. So, you know, Uber Eats and um, Australia Post and those sorts of companies taking up that kind of infrastructure before we move to passenger. Yeah, and, and, and that might be a, a great way to go, and yeah. that's a, a start. Mm. Yeah. 
With the drone I've got, Jess, you can, it has avoidance collision on it. You knew I had a drone? <laughs> I did. So, <laughs> so, as you're saying, Val, the tech is getting incredible on these things. So, it can fly and it might be an incompetent operator, uh, <laughs> which has happened, and it'll fly towards a tree and then it'll avoid, it'll go around the tree. Okay, that's and great. in certain areas, uh, there's all these warnings come up, you can't fly it, basically because of it's in restricted airspace. Does yours have an eagle detection monitor as well? No, but it has been swooped by birds. <laughs> so, anyway, back to, back to our interview. Um, how do, now, back to 20-minute neighbourhoods, um, Phil. How, how do we achieve that in car-based suburbs? Uh, look, it is quite difficult, and, and particularly um, one of the main things that I've seen um, across the time is, is behaviour. Uh, if you've moved into a, a suburb and you've had to use your car um, a lot of the time to, to get to your local conveniences, um, it's hard to change the behaviour of an individual or, or a family to go, OK, I've been driving my car for the last X amount of time, and now, well, I could walk there, but, gee, the car's right there, and that's more convenient. Um, so making um, that change to, to behaviour, which can come through... Uh, better trails, better paths, more attractive opportunities for walking, maybe some interests along the way. Um, I think that's a way to uh, try, try and achieve those 20-minute neighbourhoods. It's arguable, I think, that you know some of our inner and middle ring suburbs are potentially more successful at being able to achieve the 20-minute neighbourhood concept. Have you given any thought to how greenfield subdivisions and new communities might be able to move towards that kind of concept? I guess the, the main thing in touching on what I've I just mentioned about you move into a place and, and you, you're reliant on your car um, until that infrastructure is, is delivered, so the pass and the trails. So what might be um, a way to accelerate it or make it happen a bit sooner uh, would be to deliver those pass and trails um, early on in the piece so it does make sense and, and it, it is convenient for, for you as a resident to, to walk the, the 10 or 15 minutes to the shops or... Um, your other conveniences. What about the um, the e-scooter kind of concept that's been flouted a few times now? Have yep. you seen that come about in any developments that you've been working on just yet? Uh, not here, no. Um, I, I did notice, I was in the States recently and, and the um, horrible scooters uh, are very pre prevalent, particularly um, in Washington and LA, um, but yeah, haven't quite seen it here yet. Well, I was in Nashville, Val, and they had a local ordinance vote to ban the things. Oh, really? Because what happens is, you know, they're everywhere and people get drunk, get on them, and they're quite fast, hoon along the footpaths, and people get hurt. So there's a big campaign to stop them. Yeah, right. One of the rules is that you're not meant to drive on the footpath in the, in the States. Um, but and probably not no while. One's a, <laughs> no one's alluding to that, though. And not while drinking. Now, <laughs> now transport uh, well shapes cities. Where are we and what's next, do you think? Um, look, I think if you looked locally just here in Melbourne, I think we're a little bit behind um, in terms of transport. Um, looking at, at, at other countries, and as I said, I was in the States recently, um, in particular in, in Washington at um, an organisation called Local Motors. Um, they've actually come up with um, what's called Ollie. It's a um, self-driving bus or driverless bus. Um, it only seats about eight people, but it does get around a little community, um, or could get around a little community. So say from your, your major uh, train hub, and then that can do what what's called the last mile. So travelling from um, from that train hub to your house and, and back again. So the 
um, the premise around it is to use Ollie um, to uh, undertake those um, those trips that are sort of as a shuttle bus, really. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So, so is that local motors a play on general motors? Um, potentially, <laughs> they're a, a pretty big organisation in the states. Yeah. And can you explain the issues for the last mile delivery? Um, what the issues are that for transport movement? Yeah. So so the last mile, um, similar to what I just mentioned about using Ollie is um, from a delivery point of view and obviously these days um, online ordering from uh, the iconic to everything else is um, is, is quite prevalent a, a across the world um, but what delivery companies are finding is it's that last mile that costs them the most because that's the most friction when you're trying to get from say a major road to a to a house which is down a few side streets Exactly right. So that's the, the hardest part of, of the delivery process and what's the most costly. Um, so moving forward, and I think Amazon and a few other companies in the States are trialling a automated um, little robot or, or um, drone to do that last mile delivery. There's probably going to be a lot of cost involved in, in, in rolling it out, but I think in the long term, that's probably going to be a, a great outcome. Are there any other public transport disruptors that we haven't really covered that you think we should be considering in our planning? Um, I think the automated bus. Um, so whether that's a trackless tram type thing or, or automated bus is something that um, could be the way to go and, and, and would be a disruptor. What are the barriers to a trackless tram coming in in Victoria? Because there seems to have been quite a lot of chat about them over the last two or three months. I haven't seen anything more than that. Is there any particular reason you think? Is um, it cost? Is it legislative barriers? Is it something else? Look, I think cost is probably a, a, a big part of it and, and also finding, I guess, the space because you almost need a, a runway, for want of a better term, for yeah. the, the trackless tram or the automated bus to um, travel along. So I think that's the, the probably the biggest barriers for those in, mm. in Melbourne in particular. Well, in terms of public transport and disruptors coming in, do you think we need to be more open to uh, private companies coming in to provide transportation services? Yeah, look, I think that's one way to do it. Um, you know, you've seen what Uber's done to um, the industry here. Um, there's a number of other sort of share car type things that have come across in, um, in recent times. And um, I think as we were chatting before, you said we, we never saw those coming. And, and that's what's happened. We, we have, didn't see those coming. But what they have done is they've changed the total environment, how we travel. They've changed the way that we roll around from um, being at the pub to being at school and having to get home. So, And, and also delivered a certain new standard of what, you know, rating. We rate our drivers, they mm. rate us. So there's this... The data... Uh, the data coming from it is incredibly powerful. Yeah, so you can mm. predict what movements will be required. Yeah, and, and the rating thing is quite interesting because you're always having a fight with your mates about who's got the highest rating, <laughs> uh, which is sometimes the best what, part of it. What's your rating? Uh, 4.73, I think. <laughs> now, there's something, Vel, I want to ask you about medium-density housing. Whether there is any correlation between medium-density housing and increased public transport use. Do you think that uh, – uh, is there any sort of coefficiency factor that you know of? I, I don't think there is. Yeah, look, I haven't done any um, sort of research or looked into that before. Um, I'm, I'm sure someone has out there in the academic world to, to see if there is that correlation. But um, I think where you are is a big part of it. If you're sort of in a, in a city location, then, yeah, it works 
uh, really well. But if you're in an outer sort of Greenfields location where they are trying to put in uh, more medium density um, product close to the town centre or something like that, um, then I think it's a little bit harder to um, achieve the, the outcomes that you want. But I think over time, uh, that's probably going to happen. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. What are your thoughts about our efforts so far to limit parking opportunities, particularly through the um, inner suburbs of Melbourne? Look, there's the, the biggest issue, and I've worked on a number of projects where you, you are going to the traders, going to the community, going, look, we're going to take out this parking, but you're going to get a, a, a little uh, pocket park or something in its place. And and the responses are very negative. They're like, well, you know, my punters can't come out the front and, and park and, and pop in and get their milk or bread or their tats loader ticket or whatever it is. So it... There's a lot of um, problems associated with that. But again, similar to what I was chatting about before about changing behaviour, you've got to go, well, what's the better outcome for my community? Is it going to be having a park and and maybe parking a little bit away or riding there or or, um, walking there? Um, Is that a better outcome? Um, I think so. Car parking would be the most contentious issue in all planning decisions, I would argue. Um, How do you think we can improve our narrative behind, as planners, to the community as to why they should give up their car parking or or why their car parking should be reduced? How do we communicate that better? Because I don't think we're doing a particularly good job at that at the moment. Or if we are, we're not educating the community so they don't understand where we're coming from. Look, there's probably about 25 different ways that you could skin that cat um, in particular. Um, And I've got a view, and I'm sure that if you asked another five or six traffic engineers, they'd have a different view. Um, My view is, yeah, a bit of education. Um, I don't think we're doing everything uh, quite the way it needs to be, but there's always that stigma around parking. Um, I want to be able to park out the front of my house uh, is a common thing that you hear from a resident. But is that the right outcome, again, for the community? Probably not. Um, Mm, Well, I'm always, I I don't know, Jess, I'm very suspicious of when people, professionals say we need to educate the public. That... um, <clears throat> that, that that's scary to me and I think if if shops and things close down parking opportunities I know what I would do I would go somewhere else All right so and you know but are you one of those people that expects to park right out the front of the shop no, that you're going no, to I think that that's a narrow <laughs> narrow criticism oh come on <laughs> yeah I know you're our guest but um but you if you take away parking a lot of people need cars to move yeah, and I don't disagree. And I think it's great bicycle things like that. I mean, you go to Japan, the amount of people on bicycles is incredible. Um, but I just think there's a, it's it's a bit it's a bit too fascist to get rid of all car parking. But I think we've got too much. I think you know the the rate that we apply to most planning applications is, in my view, quite high, particularly where you've got <clears throat> a development for multiple different uses and the 
sometimes can be no consideration of sharing of car parking, which I think is sort of a missed opportunity in a lot of ways. And and also the the car share model, so the flexi cars and I joined um, that the other day. Jeff. Oh, did you? Good yes. job. Yeah, I've joined. Go, go Very get, proud of yeah. you. We, we've been members in terms of our company for five or six years with so you, um, flexi car. So you've practiced what you preach, indeed. And course. does it work well for your firm? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's better than um, either individuals driving their own car or obviously having a, a share car at, at work. So one that we. Um, have like a one mile grid car so being able to use flexi car or, or whoever they are is is great um, you know petrol's covered insurance is covered everything's sorted and um, and the guys at the office really enjoy it now moving on what are the what are the over the horizon issues on the transport front do you think um, again those uh, that we spoke about a bit before about um, you know what uber did to us uh, five or six years ago or whenever it was. Um, I think that next thing about how we deal with what is next um, is, is going to be the, the biggest challenge for us. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know what the, what, what the maybe, answer is there. Maybe it's efficiency out of the road system. Yeah. Uh, I, I also wanted to ask you about the data that's coming out of Uber and you know the multiple other avenues that we have to get to collect data now. How does that play a role in what you do day to day? Does that give you a greater insight into how a community is working, how a city operates, and how does that change? I guess your recommendations in your reporting. Yeah, we definitely use it a lot more than than we used to. And there was a stigma. And when I first mentioned it um, at a tribunal, I said, "Oh, look, I I re- reviewed Google data for a, a gymnasium," and I sort of got a funny look from um, the people. All um, the the member was okay, but the opposition sort of looked at me funny, going, "Well." how can you rely on that? But the data is actually quite incredible. If you check in somewhere or even if you've got your location on, it knows where you are. Um, and it's collecting so much data that it's actually not, in my view, unreasonable to use it uh, to go, okay, well, that's what that profile is. So that's how my um, how I'm going to project the, the likely car parking demand or, or something like that. And Siri knows everything. And Siri knows everything. <laughs> I, I, I've got a crush on Siri. But anyway, <laughs> so we've, uh, we're talking about intelligent transport systems. That's, what I think, the, the ITS. Yes. To, to solve a lot of the urban traffic issues we've got, utilising state-of-the-art information communication. That's the sort of thing you're talking about, is it? Yeah, so it, it does touch on that a, a little bit. Um, I, I think... ITS systems are relatively new but are coming to the fore quite a bit. It's almost like relaying, so taking your Google data or, or, or your data personally and going, okay, what is going to be the best option for you to, to, to get somewhere? There's early stages of that happening with even with just Google saying, okay, I need to go to X, Y. It gives you four different options, whether you ride your bike, um, catch a train or, or drive your car. So I think that's starting to, to uh, develop. I mean, I use that and I use Waze yeah. in my car. You know, it tells you the best route, tells you when you're going to get there. So you don't speed because no. it doesn't really change it. It also tells you where the police are and the speed traps. That's important for you, isn't it? It is. Uh, you've got to fight. You've got to resist. <laughs> you've got to resist, Phil. Now, and, Bill, what about the data around incidents and accidents on the roads? How does that does that assist with your day-to-day work as well? Because um, I assume that with all the data that we have, the information around that would be far more accessible, um, far more accurate than probably what we used to have, which would have been maybe a collection of Vic Roads records that would record incidents at major intersections. Well, Vic Roads actually has a database called Crash Stats. Um, okay. It's updated every six months. Yeah. Um, but does that only record 
But that, does that also only record on VicRoads controlled land? No, it, it, it only records roads. accidents that are reported to the police. So ah, okay. you so are missing out on, I guess, lighter type yeah. of accidents. Okay. Um, but anything where a police um, member or ambulance is called, that gets logged. Okay. Cool. It, and with this technology, it should be able to predict when an accident or breakdown is going to happen. I would think that's the level of sophistication that we're going to have very soon. I think it's a fair way away because the, the, the biggest part of, of my job in particular is, is people, um, yeah. human error. Uh, but that could be factored into the computer programs. You don't know what people are going to do, Pete. You've watched Minority <laughs> Report, haven't you? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, the problem is you don't know what people are going to do. And, you know, you could have someone that's just stressed and, and out of it that's behaving totally differently to what would, might be considered the norm through your, um, your model. Let's talk about the importance of freight. Obviously, our cities are economic entities. What is the cost of that congestion associated with freight? Um, freight companies, I think, are becoming a lot smarter um, using those uh, transport system, intelligent transport systems to go, okay, what's the best way to get to A to Z? Um, I think they're investing a lot of money in that because more time on the road for whatever product it is means less money on their bottom line. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's very important and I think that those companies are getting much smarter at it. Also, with infrastructure spending, though, Val, I mean, w w cities are economic beasts and each city competes with other cities. If a city doesn't get its transport routes and freight routes right, then everyone suffers, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And so I would have thought traffic engineers or movement engineers or access engineers, as you're now going to be called, would really pump that sort of thing up. I mean, we don't hear it from planners, Jess. We don't hear about the economic importance the health of cities enough yeah uh, yeah look I think the government looks at it sometimes uh, well not sometimes but probably a lot of the time but uh, you know as we all know not much comes out of that sometimes <laughs> um, so yeah it's, it's a bit of a challenge and congestion it, it's awful on our freeways fell at times at awful time. and that has such a negative impact on people and businesses do we do we cost that properly do you think Look, I think um, it's always going to be there. People always need to get to work. So whether companies or organisations need to start thinking um, to be a little bit at, at outside the box, whether you go, okay, well, instead of starting at your traditional nine to, to five or nine to six, maybe you start at, at 10 till seven. It might, might give you more time at home with your kids. And similarly, the, the flexible working space and the flexible working hours does, um, well, can have an impact on how people travel along our roads. This is a bit of a fun one. If you had a blank slate and you were designing a city, how would a traffic engineer approach that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, it, when I first started, it would have been all roads. Uh, five years ago, maybe a little bit more bikes. Um, but now, I'm, uh, as I've, you've probably heard, I'm, I'm a little bit more on the, the bike and the sustainable um, transport outcomes. So a few more trails, a few more paths, things to make people get to places a little bit easier um, and not necessarily buy a car and, and make it a bit, bit more interesting than just sort of rolling down a, a one and a half metre wide path through, through two trees or something like that. So make it a bit more attractive. Do you think as well, do, looking at our, I guess, our road cross sections, is there efficiencies in how we design our roads? Are they too big? Are they too small? Do you have a view on that? Yeah, look, I think there's, there's always a balance whether you're trying to carry X amount of cars or you're trying to do a bit of everything. Um, I think from a 
road space point of view, that they are pretty big. You can get up to you know 45 to 50 meter road cross sections, um, which become a barrier to communities. You can't get from one side of the road to the other um, without crossing a, a major or a major um, arterial road. So those type of barriers, I, I think, um, can be mitigated against by reducing that cross section. And if we remove parking altogether, <laughs> Pete's going to shake his head. What would that do to our road cross sections? Um, it would, would that change yeah, it? It would, depends where you are. Uh, for a local um, activity centre type road, it, it would it would make it smaller, so by about five or so metres, um, which could be put forward to landscaping opportunities or, or, or other things like that. See, this is the same mistakes as the past, Jess. You know, they, they got rid of cars <laughs> in main streets and turned everything into malls and those places died. You need slow-moving cars through those places. And you still can. You can still have the roads but through there. But more speed just, humps in, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> no more speed humps. Don't you like speed right? humps? No, I hate speed humps. How do we get more scooters and low-powered mopeds on the roads like happens in Europe? Um, look, I, I think it's... It's a sort of third way, I'm thinking, of not a car, not a bicycle. Yeah. So there's a lot of options, whether it's a motor, the motorised bicycle... Or the, or the motorised scooter, um, rather than your moped type type options. So with the moped, you obviously need to have a licence. Um, but with the but in Europe, if you've got a moped under fifty cc's, or in the states, you don't need a licence. Right. Okay, oh, I didn't know that. You've you've educated me. Oh, I hope so, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got it. Yeah. And what about bikes? How do we get more kids on bikes? And why do we make it mandatory to wear helmets where this doesn't happen in Europe and the states? Um, it's it's always a difficult one, this question, because, you know, I, I don't want to say let's get rid of all helmets and then, you know, you fall over and crack your head open and, and you're in a bit of trouble. That's personal choice, isn't it, Phil? It, it is. So what I would almost say is, you know, up to a particular age, it's mandatory. Then after that, you can wear your helmet or you don't wear your helmet. Um, and it's also your, your driving, uh, your riding choice. If you're a commuter cyclist, um, you know, with the lycra and all the rest of it, yeah, you probably should wear a helmet because you're traveling at, you know, up to 60 k's an hour and, and sometimes more. But if you're just a casual um, cyclist, lots riding of wind in your park. hair, <laughs> riding to, to the shops or something like that, mm -hmm. where you're only traveling at sort of 20, 25 k's an hour, then you, you can do away with the helmet. Speaking of experiments, Phil, what sort of experiments would you like to see happen in the traffic engineering field? Um, maybe looking at the bikes type thing and, and looking at um, incidents with helmets or without helmets and, and maybe getting a bit more data around that because it's almost a hard and fast, you know you have to wear a helmet. Um, but maybe if we had a bit better understanding of potentially those speed um, elements and, and whether you're a commuter cyclist or just a recreational one. And Val, what can your planning colleagues do to understand traffic engineering a bit more? Look, I think you guys aren't too bad. Yeah, um, I've, I've had pretty good experiences with <laughs> most <laughs> of you guys uh, around, around the traps. Um, so, and, and I think understanding what we do is pretty good. Um, do you think it's also about getting you involved early in the piece rather than bringing you in at the end where all we see is potentially just a traffic engineering report that says... Basically, counts the cars and counts the bikes. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we we do have something to offer in the early stage of a project, um, particularly when we are trying to um, encourage sustainable options. There might be some easy things that you can do early on that then um, can flow through the project and make it a, a really good outcome. Neville, you've been a, a traffic in, 
engineer for a, a relatively long time. What type of project do you get that turns up that most excites you? Uh, different ones. Like you've, we always have a residential development or something like that. But when you get um, something that's a little bit outside the box, uh, outside the box, or a little bit new, um, like a, the new concept stores or, or something like that, is is quite good. Um, and yeah, a, anything that's a, a bit off the beaten track. And what's the worst part of being in business? Do you think? Uh, not enough holidays. Right, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> right. Now, well. One thing about, uh, just going back to autonomous cars, I've read that because conventional cars are getting so much kit, so much technology in them, like all the sensors and the auto braking and things like that, that that is actually going to defer the fully integration of autonomous cars. Yeah, look, there's um, a few things there. And something I did ever think about was why you're using the autonomous car. Um, is it for you to have a break and uh, sort of turn off? Um, are you having a sandwich in, in, in the back or are you doing some work? So I think your sort of goal for using the service is probably what's going to drive that. Yeah, the, the new cars these days have, have got all those um, systems in place, which is great. Um, but it's the, I think your, your real goal for um, what you want to get out of it is what's going to drive that. Well, Jess, I'm getting a f my first new vehicle in 10 years and I'm blown away by how good cars or vehicles have become in terms of the efficiency and just the uh, collision avoidance, the pedestrian sensing. Well, basically all you need to do now is sit in the car, press the button, turns it on, and sometimes use the accelerator and the brake, right? Because a lot of the time it's done for you. Well, it's got the reverse parking, yeah. right? And it's got also to stop distractions in the car. So, well, distractions are a huge problem with, mm. as you know, and mainly phones. Yeah. So it's got voice-activated commands. Oh. So it's got, you know, you can say, read the text. So you don't need to look at text. You should get a new car, Jess. I definitely need a new car. <laughs> now, well, we're coming to the end of our, sadly, we're coming to the end of our interview. What are you reading, watching or listening to that has captivated you recently? There was something a little bit outside the square, and you know, tra traffic engineers aren't all that boring. But there was this uh, show in the states called "60 Days Inside," where they sent random civilians into um, jail uh, to try and get information out of um, them to about how the, the jail is running and things like that. I think that's a crazy idea, but it seems to be working. Um, so that's what sort of quirked my interest. And, and how do the civilians survive in prison? Some uh, really struggled. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> really struggled, yeah. And Jess, what have you been reading, listening to or watching that's captivated your interest? Not much recently, but I do have a bit of a tip. I, um, I gave up coffee about two weeks ago, which for anyone wow. that knows me knows I really enjoy and really need my coffee. Um, so I've moved on to all kinds of tea, which has been lovely been drinking peppermint tea by the litre, um, <laughs> hot chocolates with marshmallows, you name it. It's been amazing. So that's my working? recommendation. Yeah. Great. I definitely have more energy. Well, there's tea people and there's coffee people. Yeah. Well, I've got a foot in both camps, mm. I think. Well, what about you, Pete? Uh, You're I've, not going to get off scot-free. I've discovered um, City Journal, which is a great podcast from the States, Alternative Views to what you normally get. Um, I've subscribed to their magazine. It comes Alternative out of, how? 
uh, just takes a more free enterprise approach to you know planning discussions and takes a different slant on a number of urban issues like homelessness, transport, density, um, all sorts of things. And, and it's high end um, and it's just a really well produced podcast. So, I mean, there's lots of other ones, what traditional come from, say, a more government-friendly approach. They're interesting, but City Journal's great. And the other thing, of course, is my new vehicle, the Ranger. It's uh, <laughs> it's going to be black, and uh, the engine in it, Val, is it's you know it's the smaller engine is more expensive than the bigger engine, yeah, right. and it's more much better ten-speed auto. Can you believe that? <laughs> I feel we're going to have a new sponsor next week. <laughs> yeah, love 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 the Ford Motor Company. All right, so. Uh, Thank you, Val, and thank you, Jess. And thank listeners, I, I would urge you to listen to the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we are a part of, and we really enjoy being part of that. And thanks for listening to our podcast in your very busy lives. Thanks again, Val. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Val.